Welcome back to Warrior's Den. This is episode 70. I realized I think I screwed up in the last couple episodes, the uh, order number, so I think I fixed it. So this is number 70 uh, with Raziel Cohen, a.k.a. the Tactical Rabbi of NDF Training, based out of New Jersey. Uh, His specialty is, of course, tactical training. I'll just read a little bit about him uh, from the NDF website, which is ndftraining.com. Uh, Instructor Cohen, otherwise known as the Tactical Rabbi, has been training and instructing some of the best in the country. The National Defense Firearms Training Academy only became available to civilians in 2018. Prior to this, Instructor Cohen only gave private courses to military personal law enforcement officers and security details. He began his training as a competitive shooter's which helped them learn competitive techniques and apply it to the defensive world, allowing him to teach students how to be faster and more accurate. Of course, it goes on there. We'll talk about that more in a sec. But first, a word from your sponsors, which is Urban Tactics Krav Maga, turning lambs into lions since 2013. So you can check us out, of course, utkmblog.com, which is where we post this podcast actually as well as all of my rambling and soon some of my students ramblings i have some uh some awesome student contributions coming up soon from the blog so that'll be really cool and you can also support utcam if you love this podcast or what we do uh you can support it in a variety of ways you can go to utcamblog.com and click support us you can of course be super awesome and nice and just give us a donation or a, not give make a donation right uh and perhaps the tactical rabbi will say tikkun olam no i'm kidding um so you can certainly do that if you really like this content that's a simple and easy way to do that another way you can support us in this podcast is of course you can go to utkmu.com and you can learn krav maga as taught by our well, taught by me at our school so that's utkmu.com all you have to do is go to utkmu.com and Click on sign up and then you will be brought to beginner monthly or annual or novice monthly or novice annually. Basically, beginner will allow you to get access to our beginner or white belt curriculum and novice will allow you to get access to the beginner and novice curriculum. That's uh, white belt through orange belt. Eventually, uh, we will have the advanced curriculum up there. But it's still a work in progress, this website. So bear with us. There is also the members area, which is... Uh, also a wor- work in progress. The members area is a free access uh, area. There's the My Account area, and there's some. there'll be more and more free content as we move forward, uh, including some basic firearm safety as, as we teach it up here in Canada, and, of course, all the paid curriculum. Again, the advanced curriculum is not up yet, so keep your fingers crossed at utkmu.com. And if you want to come train with us in Metro Vancouver, urbantacticskm.com, and... It w- Word down the pipeline again. What are we in March, mid March, two thousand twenty-one? Uh, word down the pipeline is that we'll probably be fully open for everything back to normal by the summer or midsummer. So bear with us. But you know, if you want to come train with us, you can shoot us a line, and there are ways we can do that still. So urbantacticskm.com. Of course, you can find us on the social medias: Urban Tactics Kramaga on Facebook, Urban Tactics. Uh, also on Instagram and Urban Tactics Cam on Twitter, though, to be honest, I don't really post that much there anymore because it's just fed from my other accounts because Twitter is not my favorite company right now. 
So there is that. And of course, if for whatever reason you want to follow me, you can follow me at the Pondering Kravist at on Instagram, but it's mostly sporadic photos of nature or food or other stuff I do. So don't expect anything too crazy. Um, so back to our guests. So fun hour or so with Raziel, who grew up in L.A. now in New Jersey, where he runs uh, National Defense uh, Academy. <coughs> Firearms. Oh, I screwed that up. The National Defense Firearms Training Academy. Right. So you can train with Raziel and follow him at NDF Training or the Tactical Rabbi on Instagram. And for those of you who dislike my political or off-topic ramblings, you'll probably like this one because we pretty much stay pretty much on topic for the most part uh, on firearms specific, firearms training, tactical training, etc. So enjoy episode 70 of The Warrior's Den. Krav Maga is not just a self-defense system. It is a way of life. Warrior's Den is a podcast for Kravists, fighters, martial artists, warriors, politicians, and general citizens. Consider this. The society that separates scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. Lucididi. Your host, Jonathan Fader, talks to guests in an open and uncensored format about their fights, their philosophies, and their lives. No topic is taboo, and the conversation may start in one place and end in another. As the quote suggests, you cannot separate the warrior from the politics and the world around them, as a true warrior must be a student in all forms of art and science. Listening to The Warriors Day. Warriors Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga. Turning lambs into lions. Okay, I'm here with uh, Raziel Cohen of NDF Training based out of New Jersey, affectionately known as the Tactical Rabbi. So, uh, Raziel, uh, why don't we just start with how did life bring you to being the tactical rabbi and teaching uh, special forces uh, and civilians now in firearms? So it's a it's a very interesting question because there there's a lot that went into how I am where I am today. Um, where it started off as is that my family has a nonprofit organization in LA. It's called Global Kindness. They help over two thousand people in LA and thousands more around the world. Uh, with food, clothing, furniture, they help pay bills, like the full deal of a nonprofit. And um, a part of what they do, unfortunately, is they deal with people who have like psychiatric issues or some form of mental disabilities. And um, which oftentimes means that they're being, um, they're given some medications to be able to deal with that. Um, What has happened on a few occasions is that before I even turned 18, we had 14 attempted break-ins and two attempted murders on my family just because of the, of the kind of people that we deal with. Mm. And what it came down to is that before I was 18, I didn't have the right to defend myself. I didn't have the ability to be able to deal with that. Um, but what that really came out to be is that I, I stuck with the motto of don't mistake our kindness for weakness. Mm. Just because we're doing the right thing to help other people doesn't mean that we're just going to be victims to what other people are trying to do. So I kind of went the route of trying to help more people in different communities around the world with security. So I'm still trying to follow my parents, like um, what they taught me about giving back and trying to help out the world, uh, but more into the aspect of security than in charity of food, clothing, and that kind of thing. That sounds like I didn't know a lot of that. The uh, I guess that's why you're talking about, I was listening to your thing with Rudy the other day, and you're talking about Tikkun Alam, and that kind of gets into there. Um, 
so I guess you come from a religious family then as, <laughs> as uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, because, you know, I'm Canadian looking down the States and often when you talk about cross country culture, people really don't understand as much as, as they think, especially as Canadians, they're always thinking about Americans. And, but what I noticed is, is, uh, at least from what I can see that the Jew jury in, in North America is leans one way politically and very much doesn't like guns, at least as I'm seeing. And you, you, you know, you went completely the other way. Uh, so there's definitely that. There, there are definitely a lot of uh, Jews who don't like guns, and there, there could be a million different reasons why they, they don't like firearms. But what it comes down to is that we can always use history as a guide for what we could expect the world to be like. Human beings are not that complicated in the respect to the, the throughout history people, human beings in general, not just Jews, but human beings in general have always followed a certain protocol. Mm. The protocol is, is that there are strong men who create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create bad times. And then the trend starts over again. Yeah. We're right now, in my opinion, back to the era or the, the area of weak men where our parents had it way harder than us. My, my father came from Iran originally. My mother came from Morocco. They both came here for very negative reasons. My father was uh, was coming here because they were escaping the Shah of Iran. It was being overthrown. My mother came here because they were trying to kill her father because he was the chief rabbi of Morocco. Um, they're coming from pretty much either third world countries or areas that they had no structure like we do have here in America. They came here, they built off a beautiful life for us where we have freedom of speech, we have freedom of religion. We're, we're coming to a place where we didn't have what they, we're having what they didn't have, where they're coming from. And now we're comfortable, we're happy, we, we feel content. And now because we're so happy and we're so content, we have the ability to start complaining about everything that we're doing. Yes. And because of that, it's, it's creating a, a generation of, of weaker people. Yeah. So um, Jews throughout history have always been targeted. We're always the scapegoats for, for some kind of event. And obviously we wanna hope and pray that it's never going to happen again. And we always say never again, since the Holocaust, we say never again, yeah. but saying never again means that we have to take action. We can't just say never again. We, we need to be the proof of existence saying how we'll do whatever it takes to make sure it's never again. So some people lean against it, but I feel like I'm a part of the people who we're gonna actually try to take action in showing that we're, we're different than we were in the past. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Like uh, my girlfriend is actually uh, Asian, so she doesn't know a lot of the history. And uh, I, I listened to a whole bunch of podcasts out there. One of them was a, is a business tycoon. I always forget his name. And he was telling the story of his family uh, leaving. It was either Poland or Germany. And his father was one of the people who's had that mentality. And he was saying he felt something was wrong. I think it was just before they, uh, a couple of weeks before Germany shut the borders of everyone. And he ended up getting his whole family out. And his family was one of the people of the, uh, uh, the Japanese Lithuania embassy story. And, you know, and I was saying, it's not paranoia as a Jew. And I'm just as shocked, you know, maybe as you is that I can't understand why so many Jews are like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. And I'm like, no, like my, I have a truck and at any point I can hop in that truck and it's got food for two weeks and I can just disappear. Right. Uh, and I, so I an important that, thing to take into account is that we, we don't want to live in a state of paranoia yeah. because that obviously is going to, that's going to put us besides for a bad state mentally, it often would make us overthink certain things that don't necessarily need to be overthought, <clears throat> but we're, we're looking at more of just being prepared, 
right? So since we understand history and we understand the things that have happened in the world, we're not doing it out of fear and of worry. We're doing it just out of, we're ready. So yeah. it's not fear anymore because we're ready. We're, we're, we're structured. We have what we need to do going. We, we, we have our plan. We have our, our, our safety net. And yeah. it's just about if God forbid that would need to happen, we'll, we'll deal with it when we deal with it. Yeah, I like to, like I teach Krav Maga and I like to use the, uh, the Jeff Cooper uh, color code model quite a lot. And, you know, people are like, Vancouver is a left-wing city, uh, not as bad as LA, but, you know, people are like, oh, that's, you know, it's paranoia. It's like, no, it's a uh, mental code yellow. You're just paying yes. attention and you're ready. And I like to use, you know, when the paranoia thing comes up in Vancouver, it's like, hey, what's the most likely scenario in Vancouver that you're actually going to need to be prepared for a few weeks? It's an earthquake. And I'm like, that's not paranoia. <laughs> the yeah. same preparedness for that would be the same preparedness for me having to disappear for whatever the reason, you know? Yeah. So that's the thing. So what you're saying with Jeff Cooper is that there's only one stage below yellow and that's white, which means yeah. if you're in white, you're immediately a target for everything. A, a friend of mine actually last week, his wife was walking down the street and there came to a point of the block where there was like a, a tree planted like in the sidewalk. So it kind of becomes like a half sidewalk instead of a full sidewalk. And she was walking with her baby and she was on her phone. And as she's walking towards that tree, um, she was kind of, she stopped there because she was on her phone, which was means she was in condition white. And a guy walked up in front of her and got so annoyed that she was taking up the road, even though she wasn't, that he he hit her in the back of the head as she was walking by. Yeah. Now, as a mother with a child, you're going to be very limited to what you're going to be able to do, not necessarily because she didn't have the capability of, of dealing with the situation, but she didn't see it coming. So yeah. being in condition yellow is super important for survival because you're understanding the potentials for things to happen. You're calm, you're relaxed, but you're aware. And that's, that's the key point of it is being aware of what's happening around you. Yeah. And, you know, I... I put a lot of thought. I actually want to go back to something you said was the um, the history repeated with the weak men thing. You know, I've asked uh, historians and intellects and, and even when I'm listening to this, a lot of people, they just don't believe that. They refuse. And they're like, no, 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 maybe it rhymes. And you're like, well, the, other historians have compared to the instability of now to kind of like pre-World War One even. And it's like, it, you can feel it. And, and you know, it... I don't know if you're aware of going on in Canada right now, they're trying to do a gun grab here. And I, Biden in America with his attack on the yeah. second amendment and it, yeah. it's like, what's going on. It's like, it's one of those. What's weird, interesting weird is times. that you have to always going back to what, if we're always following history, right? The, the, the prime example that people, people give is Rome. Rome considered themselves to be the biggest superpower in history and they ruled everything. And like, they were so powerful and even people like them that they, they were looked at as such a superpower got destroyed. Yeah. Now, we could always say that, well, technology is different today and our availability to information is different today. We could also use the prime example of COVID, right? Yeah. COVID is a perfect example how, whether obviously there's so much debate associated, obviously, but just to talk about how a government's able to put so much fear in people, whether justified or not, and how they don't need to be super powerful themselves when they get their own people to turn on them and yeah. how they're able to shut down entire cities and economies and things like that. It's, it could be that information is different, but it could be that information is being swayed different directions, which puts us, puts us in the same position of weakness yeah. where we're just not going to be aware. We're not going to be sure of what's going on. Yeah. And I, you know, I, I have a very, I wouldn't call it radical, but the way I approach Krav Maga is different because I actually, I don't know if you're familiar with the saying, so one may walk in peace with Krav Maga. 
Yeah, it's so uh, the I like to say modern founder because you know martial arts politics. Uh, Amy yeah. Lichtenfeld, uh, he was asked once, "Why did you create Krav Maga?" And he said, "So one may walk in peace." Uh, and just for those who don't know his history, he grew up in Bl- Bratislava, learned martial arts, etc., and ended up teaching the Jews in that area to fight off the Nazis before it went totally crazy. He ended up getting on the last boat out of the area. <clears throat> ended up in uh, uh, the checklist free check army in, in Egypt for a while but anyways a lot of people have the myth and it's, it's partially it's the credit of the Israelis because they, they just do the tunnel vision approach to everything um, is that it's just about the aggression it's just about um, the techniques and whatnot and I, I take the approach that if it's so one may walk in peace you have to learn to defend yourself from everything and that could be misinformation from the governments or or, or any source really and, you know, so occasionally I get people come to the door, they got in their head that, you know, it's just beat the crap out of each other. I'm like, no, because I do a lot of talking with beginners and I want to uh, frame their mental state so that they know how to interpret information. Right. I'm not a communications expert at all, um, but it's like that's more important because I know most people and probably the same with you with firearms other than special forces are not going to put in the time to develop the skill set. And so opening that mindset to. Uh, to interpret the information, COVID being the example, I have a few students, you know, mad at me. You're not a scientist, John. I'm like, hey, I'm just relaying the actual data that I saw and I'm giving you my interpretation. And it's, it's some people are like, oh, you're right. I never heard that before. And other people are like, I don't want to listen to you, you know? <laughs> so what you're saying is correct. But going back to what you said with with um, a lot of beginners, the, 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 the phrase that goes around the gun world a lot, it's not like I, um, it's, it's not my line of, it's more important to know when not to shoot than how to shoot. It's yeah. always going to be better to learn how to de-escalate a situation because you, there's so many things you have to think about of, I don't want to be in a fight because you never know someone else's capabilities. You never know what kind of training they've had. You never know the effects it's going to have on your life, financially, mentally, legally. There's, there's so many aspects that go into it that for any martial arts, for any firearms training, for any self-defense in any form or fashion, we're always trying to avoid that situation, even if it makes us look bad. If our egos are hurt, but someone else isn't, that's better because we don't want to have be put into that kind of position where we might need to show our very, very skilled capabilities, but at what cost, right? Yeah. You always have to like weigh the pros and cons of what was the situation worth it for that kind of level of force. Yeah. Yeah. One of my, uh, like I train, I'm not affiliated specifically with one organization. I train with everyone. And one of my instructors, uh, I mean, Himmelstein, he'll say, listen, guys, this isn't the Krav Maga of the seventies. Everyone's got cameras. You gotta be smart yeah. about it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, it's yeah. definitely changed. I like, if you ever look at the videos from the seventies, they're just kicking the crap out of it. Like just, you know, bare knuckle. And, and now you gotta be tactical from, from all approaches. Now on that note, Tactical rabbi, is that just a nickname or are you actually a rabbi? I'm actually a rabbi, actually nice. uh, ordained rabbi. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's in, a, in a sense doing, doing the work of God because people don't understand the, the importance of security or people don't immediately put money towards security. A big part of when um, I was getting popular was, I believe it was two years ago when there was a huge rise in active shootings yeah. and people didn't know what they needed. And that was a big, big issue where um, you can understand this also when it comes to, to self-defense, that there's a lot of things that are used as buzzwords or ways to try to get people to pay for something, but it's not actually what they need. For example, and I just had a conversation with a guy, I think it was two days ago. If someone came up to you as a, as a Krav Maga instructor and says, I got this phone case that has a taser on it, right? 
That'd be illegal in Canada. <laughs> Assuming it was legal, your immediate reaction is, are you serious? Like, yeah. that's not just because you have a taser now. First of all, it doesn't mean it's effective. Doesn't mean that you'll be able to get within contact range of the person. Doesn't mean that it's going to be a good option for someone who doesn't have training. Doesn't mean that you don't need training, even if it's something as stupid as that, right? Yeah. But there was a lot of people when it came to structural security of a home or of a, of a, of a synagogue where they're like, we want to do this and this and this. And I said, you have to think about it. How does that help you? right yeah. just because you have cameras in front of your, your 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 house of worship doesn't mean that it's going to help you because the cameras only tell you what happens later unless there's someone monitoring it and is able to actively make a difference if they see something coming up yeah. there are things that you need to take into account of being proactive with the problem um cameras are very oftentimes used as a reactive because after a situation takes place well we could play back the footage and see what happened but people die because the, because of that what could we have done differently yeah. that could have prevented it altogether yeah, you know, I, I don't know if you know, I served in the IDF uh, a few years ago and, and the uh, bystander effect, are you familiar with it? So it's a phenomenon that they studied where the first person, like no, if say someone needs help, uh, no yes, one gets yes, involved, yes. right? Yes. And I said, that doesn't exist in Israel. In Israel, you'll get half the people running away who are not capable and half the people running towards. And in North America and a lot of other Western countries, uh, whether it be a threat or something that's like pay attention to it, uh, we, there's a tendency is it, people won't help until one or two people start getting involved. And even uh, to the extreme in, in, say, China, due to a whole bunch of reasons, people will acknowledge there's a thing and completely ignore it because getting involved will mean just a, a nightmare for them, right? Um, so that's a, that's a part of the like the the warrior mentality of yeah. being a, a fighter, being a survivor, being a defender is that I, I have two different classes that I teach um, in, in this specific area. When it comes to active shootings, the two classes are run, hide, fight. Mm -hmm. And that's for civilians who we're not gonna get involved. We don't wanna be here. I want nothing to do with this. The process is taught run, hide, fight, right? Yeah. Run if you have no other, run because that's the first thing you wanna do. Hide if you can't run, fight if it's your last option. Yeah. When I'm training law enforcement or when I'm training members of the military or when I'm training people who are, are, are concealed carry holders, I say, that's not how it works for you you're in a new tier of people where you're starting from fight. It's called fight, secure, treat. You're fighting because that's your job. You're yeah. securing the situation to make sure everyone's ready. Treat because if you're, there's someone who is wounded, a part of what you need to know how to do is treat with the kind of wounds that you might be dealing with. So learn how to use a tourniquet, learn how to use uh, Israeli bandages, learn how to stop heavy bleeding because your job as a defender is to make sure not only to deal with the threat, but to help those around you after the threat is over. Yeah, now, you know, again, coming from the outside looking in to America gun culture, uh, the concealed carry or open carry even, you know, you can debate which one's better. I mean, tactically, usually concealed carry, but the idea that is discussed about who should be allowed to conceal carry, what are, what are your thoughts on that? So there, there are two aspects to it. I'm, I'm a, a firm believer in the Second Amendment, which means that I believe that anyone should be allowed to own a gun, obviously not being a felon or something that proves yeah. that a person shouldn't, but... I believe that everyone should be able to own a gun um, and there shouldn't be no regulations by the government on top of that. However, um, that's because I don't feel the government's able to set up a structure that's good enough for people to really be trained. So for example, if the government said that this is the required training, for example, law enforcement, law enforcement qualifications, unfortunately are not up to my standard of what I consider to be good. Yeah. Statistically in the United States, four out of five shots taken by law enforcement is recorded as a miss, yeah. which doesn't show you to their qualifications as standard. But I still feel that if you're someone who's going to be concealed carrying, you should invest all the money and time that you have available to yourself to make sure that you're going to be an asset and not a liability. So what that means is that 
you should be able to get a gun and you should be allowed to conceal carry. But for you to be able to conceal carry, as much training as you're, you're financially and legally and capable in all forms or fashion are able to get, you should take it. Because not only should you be past law enforcement standard, you should be past every standard that you're, you're able to achieve. Because if we're dealing with a situation where we're dealing with an active shooting, that means there's a huge amount of potential liability. There's a huge amount of uh, potential um, people that shouldn't be getting killed, getting killed. So if you're adding yourself as a liability, not an asset, in my opinion, you shouldn't be carrying a gun. It doesn't mean you shouldn't own a gun. It doesn't mean that the second amendment doesn't apply to you. It just means that if you're going to be someone who carries a gun, you have to understand the mental effects of what happens, the mental uh, state you should be able to put yourself in, the physical necessities, what your limitations are. If there's a shot at 50 yards and you have a pistol, if that's something you're capable of, awesome. If that's not, you need to know that and be able to deal with that situation. So if you're in a mall and it's three stories high and there's a shooter on the top floor, what's what's your move, right? So there's a lot that needs to be taken account of how to deal with a situation, how to de-escalate a situation, how to deal with medical. And only after that do I find it fair for you to be carrying a gun. Um, obviously, that's just my opinion, but that's where I try to train uh, my students to be going towards. Yeah. So, I mean, given your family's uh, experience with mental illness and in the break-ins, as you mentioned, how does that factor in with people who are mentally ill? Because yeah, I'm not, I know it's state by state in the U.S., but I'm not sure, is there any preventative methods to, to prevent so a big part of that again is goes back to de-escalation however there are going to be times where de-escalation doesn't work and that's that goes back to training i was like i'm not going to tell you which one does which one doesn't because each scenario is going to be different a perfect example is that this is a story i give during uh during our our personal defense course there was a story of a person who called 911 and when the dispatcher answered the phone, all they heard was yelling. They just heard screaming and screaming and screaming. So they didn't know if it was a medical emergency or if it was a police-based emergency. So what they did is they sent law enforcement first because they wanted to make sure that if it was a police-style emergency, that they're not sending medical into it without being able to deal with it. So a law enforcement officer gets to the scene. And when he gets to the scene, he sees this huge, huge guy on top of this lady, and he's just stabbing her over and over and over again. He gets out of the car, pulls out his gun, stop, 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 stop. He's yelling, yelling, yelling. He gets closer to him. He takes three sh- three shots to the guy's chest. It had zero reaction, zero reaction. He then came closer and engaged the guy into the head, and that stopped the situation. What later ended up happening is they realized that the guy was on a mixture of two different types of narcotics, yeah. which ended up making him completely immune to getting shot because his body was not reacting to it. So those are a kind of situation that you have to deal with of, there are so many things that the officer could have done, should have done, did that it's not going to be fair to be able to break down because if we weren't in that scenario, it's going to obviously play out differently. But we could use that as an example of what could he have done? What should he have done? Did he do the right thing? And understand that that could be a situation you might be put into. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you'll never know. You'll never know the kind of situation. But going back to what we said with mental health is that we want to learn how to de-escalate because maybe there's an ability to be able to do that. If you're late to a meeting and you pulled out a gun on someone, your meeting is canceled. You have to deal with whatever you can in front of you. If the means the person is suicidal and you're able to talk them down until law enforcement arrives, then do that, right? Yeah. But that all comes down to training because not everyone is going to have that capability. Yeah, I just want to put a pin in that because I do want to come back to that. Uh, my question, I think I really was, because I'm being Canadian, um, people who are mentally ill being able to purchase firearms in the States. So there are regulations, thing. obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah there are, are, are regulations. And obviously, I feel that there are certain mental health illnesses that a person should not be allowed to own a firearm because it shows that they're just, if they're not able, if they're not able to perform certain acts 
um, that are not firearms related, mm. how much more so with a firearm, I wouldn't feel that it would be a good idea for them to have right. them. Um, so for example, um, if a person has maybe, again, I don't, well, I don't want to give a certain example because I'm, I'm not a mental health expert mm. to know how bad certain things are. But if a person's not able to make a certain decision with how to use a firearm, then they shouldn't be allowed to make a, a decision of if it would be necessary to take someone's life. For example, this is a very, very downscaled example. If I, if I'm, if I have a cold and I'm not feeling well and I take NyQuil, right? So NyQuil ha is alcohol-based, which, and it can make me drowsy and it can make me not be able to use the gun with full function. So if I ever ended up taking NyQuil or any medication that would end up making me drowsy or not able to have full 100% capability, I lock up my guns for a minimum of 24 hours and I don't touch them. Yeah. Because in my head, if I'm not 1000% sure about the decisions I'm able to make with using a gun, I don't touch my guns. Yeah. That's the same reason I don't drink. I don't drink alcohol unless it's a very, very rare occasion under very strict rules or whatever. Guns are not going to be nearby. I don't touch guns for 24 hours. Even if the alcohol is going to get like faded off after five hours, I'm giving myself a 24 hour time frame where I understand I need to know 1000% what my abilities are, what my capabilities are. Yeah. So every Simcha Torah, no guns, right? <laughs> no guns, nowhere. No. <laughs> I, I thought I'd actually just, because uh, a lot of people don't know, like the firearms laws in Canada, and I actually teach the Canadian firearms safety course. Um, and it's, it's interesting because it, in Canada, up until recently, it hasn't been too much of a deal. It's, so in order to get a, a firearm in Canada, you have to take, there's two, two courses, the non-restricted and the restricted, because we have three legal classifications, uh, non-restricted, restricted, prohibited. And so you take your non-restricted, which is usually your, you know, big brown hunting guns and long guns. And then your day two or however the course is run with that instructor is you, primarily to deal with the pistols. And then prohibited is you don't even talk about it until later on when you have a reason to get a prohibited license. Uh, and then you send in your paperwork. The police will do a background check. And most of the time, it's fine. Occasionally, you'll get red flagged. Now, on the uh, issue of mental health, having depression on its own is not a disqualifier in Canada. Uh, you would have to have been committed to a hospital um, by a doctor previously or in the last several years or have violent criminal history to be you know, precluded from owning a firearm. Now, the thing that some people uh, don't know is you actually, your name gets put into a computer and they background check you every day. And as a general rule, it is not an issue in Canada unless you're uh, get into crime or, or something or you're now in a spousal abuse situation they might remove it but unfortunately what happens is you get leaders like we have now where they're like oh we believe in the un small arms treaty and canadians don't even really want that and then they just spin it and spin it and spin it now uh, i believe in the, i think they're actually good good restrictions one of the things we have is safe storage laws is you're required to store your you can't just sort of leave firearms laying around the house right the idea of self-defense in canada so as I'm teaching the course, the answer is no, you cannot use it for self-defense. But if you look at case law and you look at the actual use of force laws, you can. It gets complicated, of course, but it's frowned upon because usually the crown here will be like, how'd you get your gun out of safe storage? But the safe storage, as you said, when they implemented those laws, reduced the suicides dramatically because it's just that time it takes to think to, to get, get stuff out and operate it. People sort of think down, which is actually... Uh, about 80% of firearms deaths in Canada are suicide related still. And unfortunately, the media does not represent those numbers. Um, now, if I was in the States, though, when seeing there's congressmen and senators or women saying, we want your guns. Yes, we do. I'd be like, yeah, I don't want any back. Like, I don't, 
because of the history, the first thing authoritarian people do is slowly start taking the guns, right? So what, what are your so thoughts on, yeah. on that comparison there, like Canadian? It's a very loose one, of course. But So there are a few, so a lot of different points to, to touch on there. First of all, what you're saying is, is correct, where a huge majority of deaths in the United States are based off suicide. And obviously those numbers are never going to be reported because it's not interesting. People want to know about gun violence and like active shootings and active shootings, if, uh, if I remember correctly, I know for sure are under 2%, probably yeah. under 1% of the actual issues in the United States when it comes to guns. But a part of the media being a problem is that when you publicize stuff like that, you're creating a trend. Violence works on trends. So if you're saying everyone's doing active shootings right now, oh my God, what's the world coming to? You're creating other people who want to be a part of that. They want to be, they want to have their 15 minutes of fame, positively or negatively, they're going to get it. So that's obviously a problem because we don't want to be able to create a trend when it's not necessary and when it's a very small percentage of what the problems are. But that's unfortunately how the media works. In regards to like safe storage laws and things like that, my, my mentality is that I don't really care what the law is. If I'm about to die, I'm going to do whatever I need to do. Yeah, that's that's what it comes down to. Now, obviously, there are a lot of things you need to be taking taking into account, and the more proactive you are in dealing with the situation, hopefully, you don't get to that point. But no matter what the rules are, at the end of the day, if I feel like it's either me or that guy, I'm killing him. Yeah. And again, it sounds very graphic, but that's the reality because if it's just me or him, that's the way it works. Now, again, there's a lot of things that could be preventive. That before we ever got to that point, we should have had a lot of other things in place, but what it comes down to ultimately is that I don't want to train someone into thinking of, but is this legal right now? If your life is on the line, do whatever you need to do to survive. One of, one of my favorite instructors, um, his line, um, is James Yeager from Tactical Response, his line is the only unfair fight is the one you lose. Yeah. So do whatever it takes to survive. You'll deal with all the legalities after. Yes, it's important to know what those legal legalities can become and what those things sh might, or might be um, later on down the line. But in the moment of life and death, don't think about that. You need to need to survive. And that's what's most important. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Now, yeah, one thing I, yeah, what it's going to say, the, uh, what is it? Better to be judged by 12 than carried by six sort of saying, yeah. right? Um, like right now in Canada, they have uh, the gang war in Toronto that their laws are not dealing with or that they're not dealing with it. Same sort of situations in LA and all these cities with the same sort of policies and everyone's just like, no, you can't do it. But anyways, um, one thing I always talk about when it, active shooter situations do happen, of course, it makes up news here. And we had one uh, last year in Nova Scotia, um, the concept of the lone wolf, because you always get people who are like, well, the police should have prepared for that. I'm like, if it's a true lone wolf, yeah, have fun with that. And it's like, how, how do you sort of explain to people that if someone wakes up one day and decides to have a bad day with a gun, it's, it's so hard. It's to... never happened. But what that means is that th this is a very crazy thing that people don't speak about. I know for a fact it's over 80%. I think the number is higher, but over 80% of the people who ended up doing an active shooting told someone. They yeah. told them that they were going to do it or they publicized it in some form or fashion. They have. Now, this obviously is a mental thing. It's, it's, yeah. It has to be a mental thing because it's, it's crazy. Now, there's always been cases of if you follow trends of that person, you'd be able to see it coming. Now, what that means is that for schools, when, when we go deal to deal with schools and we tell them about how to look out for these things and what, what to do, what it immediately comes down to is what's the relationship between certain teachers and their students. If there's like the cool guy teacher kind of thing that a lot of students could connect with and just be kind of like the role model. And they're speaking to the people that they are worried have potential uh, for, for just 
just depression because if they're in school and they're not popular or they're, they clearly see that there's an issue. If they're speaking to these guys and trying to show that people care about them and that they're able to speak to them, it has, it has, it has been shown that since over 80% of the people have decided to say something, even if this guy has told another friend of his, but not the teachers, and that kid is comfortable enough to tell staff, this could, these are things that can be shown to be prevented. Mm. Now, it's it's obviously I'm saying that it, it could sound it could sound very like broad of a statement, but if there are so many cases of people being able to people showing that they've told someone else, and this is already less than two percent or one percent of the issue in the United States, then we could even reduce that by half a percent mm. and reduce it even more than an issue, just because over eighty percent of that half percent are telling people that they're they're planning on doing this act of violence. So. Um, if, if we're able to show people that we love them, we care for them, there's always going to be support for other people that we're going to be speaking to, then we're creating a world of more care, more love for each other. And we're going to reduce the likeliness of these kind of devastating issues occurring. Yeah, I think it was uh, Joe Rogan said, uh, America doesn't have a gum problem, it has a mental health problem, right? And, and you know, it's, you look at some really high profile cases, like uh, in America, the Pulse nightclub shooting, or, or in Canada, the Nova Scotia one, um, I look at those as complete and utter failure of government and, and law enforcement agency. And I love law enforcement. Don't get me wrong, but like America ha in particular, like the, I don't know what you know about the Nova Scotia one. It gets a little weird and conspiratorial where it's like, huh? But the, the Pulse nightclub one, which at the time was the, the biggest shooting, it's like that guy was on the FBI list. They'd been reported and, and everyone just did nothing, you know, and then they went after the gun community. Uh, what, what are your thoughts of that? So, so an example of, of what you're saying is that in Florida, in the Florida shooting, it was Parkland, um, there, there was so much more that happened there because besides for the fact that this guy passed, I, I, there, unfortunately, there was a lot of cases, so I, I, yeah. I think I'm talking about the right case. Yeah. It, besides for the fact that the guy was on a watch list and he wasn't legally able, able to have a gun, the biggest thing that came out of that is that the Supreme Court ruled that law enforcement has no actual obligation to, to protect us. That's mm -hmm. the rule in the United States. Yeah. Now, in that scenario, law enforcement, there were law enforcement members that were outside the facility and never went in. They stayed outside or even left because of the active shooting. Now, what does that come to show? What, what that comes to show and what I tell people is that it's always better if you have a security officer who's guarding your school, it's better that that guy has an association with the people there because there's going to be more likely a chance that he wants to fight to the death for the people that are in that building if he knows them and cares for them than if it ends up being someone who's getting paid $15 an hour because I'm just getting, it's not worth my $15 an hour. I'm an image until something occurs that I'm out, right? So there's a lot of synagogues that have members of their own synagogue that are defenders of that place because if my kids are there, if my community is there, I'm willing to do whatever it takes to protect them than if it comes down to me be, being paid. Now, what that comes down to as well is that as civilians, what we're trying to do is we're trying to fill the gap of when a problem occurs and when law enforcement arrives. That's the gap that we're trying to fill. So in that scenario, let's say the officer didn't show go, go into the building, which I think is the worst. He shouldn't be in law enforcement. If you're a part of law enforcement, whether you officially have the legal obligation to protect them or not, in my head as a civilian, you do have that obligation to go in because that's what we're well, that's what we're expecting of you. Now, if you're not able to do that, I understand. I have nothing against you, but don't join law enforcement. Yeah. So as a civilian, we should have the ability to be able to have law-abiding citizens who are vetted and trained properly to be able to be in schools and synagogues like that and be that defender until law enforcement arrives because we want to be able to close that gap as much as possible. Yeah, and I mean, I think 
you know, all the stuff going on all over the place, particularly in America, but not specifically, the lack of quality training from law enforcement, both in firearms and hand to hand combat is a serious problem. And it seems like no one is like, I think uh, Jocko Willings, and I agree with him that 20% of their week should be training of physical or, or firearms kind, you know, you don't use it, you lose it. Um, how do you have you had success stories trying to convince law departments specifically or counties to really kick up their training to a more appropriate level? So there are, there are two different types of law enforcement officers that come to my classes. One is the person who understands that law enforcement training alone isn't enough. Yeah. And they're willing to invest their own money into training, which is the best investment because it's not like you're the one that's going to be in the gunfight. If, if God forbid you get into gunfight, it's going to be you. So it's, it's not like, well, my department's going to give me training. It's your life. So if they're smart enough to invest their own money into training, they end up being the best law enforcement officers I know because they understand that it's not enough. So they go to they go to um, psychology classes. They go to um, like um, Brazilian jujitsu classes. They go to Krav Maga classes. They go to firearms classes because they want to improve themselves as a warrior as much as possible. Then there are the people who are there for one of two reasons, either because they're not really sure what they're, what they're like, what they don't have. So they're here to kind of experiment and see if it's worth it. Or they're kind of here to say like, I kind of know already, but I'm here more as like a favor to you. So what ends up happening is that I have like a 14 year old who has a basic and firearms knowledge who can outgun them just because they understand the fundamentals and they practice a lot. They do a lot of dry fire training. And when they come to the class, they're able to outgun those law enforcement officers just because that's what they've, they've trained to do. Now, there's a difference, by the way. Just because they're good at outgunning a law enforcement officer when it comes to training doesn't mean that they're going to be good at de-escalation or running or fighting or all the other stuff. It just comes to show you that in every aspect you put a lot of time and effort into training, it shows that that's going to be better. So if a 13-year-old is putting more time into firearms training than law enforcement, it just ends up being what it is. Uh, it does, again, it doesn't mean that law enforcement is bad. It just means that they should try to be putting as much time and investment into their own levels of training so that they could be better law enforcement officers. Yeah. And I've seen, you know, I've seen videos of airsofters. Uh, actually, I watched one recently. He never shot a real gun, but he's a competitive airsofter with, you know, yeah. realistic. And then he went to go shoot, uh, you know, real steel, as they call it. And it was phenomenal. And it's like the, Excellent. the, yeah. the, the uh, tactile skills transition. Like when I'm teaching Krav Maga, you know, I'm, I'm limited in the firearm stuff I can do up here. Like I can still do it, but it, it is hard. So we work with, uh, training pistols, aerosoft, et cetera, although that might be <laughs> hard coming up with these new laws. Um, but it people don't realize that that re repetition movement, like in, serving in the IDF, I realized they spend so much time on just dry fire and drilling and drilling and drilling that it translates really well over to, uh, over to uh, real life. And I think even if you're using your real firearm, of course, unloaded and made safe, you just drilling is a good way to uh, to build those skills because how fast can you draw? Uh, I once I had a school in one one city and uh, commercial space, so we're you know making noise and there's a crazy neighbor called the police, and and the woman police officer who came said, you know, oh, you know, noise complaint. Said okay, and I said, hey, you know, I'm doing a, a firearms uh, disarm course this weekend, and, and her response was. Oh, if, if I ever need to do that, I can just shoot them. I'm like, are, are you sure? Do you have the, the wow. eye training, right? Wow. Yeah, I was shocked. And, it, you know, it's, it's RCMP. But um, it, goes, it goes back to what you were saying. Right. Of like, it, what, she wasn't thinking about de-escalation. Yeah. She wasn't thinking about like, so if, if her perspective was, was that, well, if I can't fight him, I'm going to immediately kill him. Yeah. That's 
crazy, but also to think about, so that has happened to me before. Not, not like that. That's crazy. But like where a, a lot of times law, so to, to put things out in the open, I don't have military background. I don't have law enforcement background. I don't have like, I'm, I'm very open about what I do. My, my specialty is firearms training. Yeah. Now um, it's up to you to, to decide what, what kind of training you want from me, because I can understand why people do or don't want to do certain training, like fine. But there's a lot of times where people don't understand how there are a lot of guys I would go to who are really, really good at airsoft and understand that they, they, they treat it like it's real weapons. And I would more likely go train with them yeah. than I would with some with certain people who have a huge amount of credentials in the background just because it's about how and why they do things and how they create and set up the fundamentals, which ultimately is the most important thing. And if you're not understanding what the fundamentals are and understand all the details that go into the background, if you have a foundation of the house that's not secure, the house doesn't matter. It's going to break. Yeah. Right? It's going to collapse. So it all comes down to fundamentals and proper training to be able to make that difference. Yeah. And, I, and I, you brought up a point I meant to ask you about where, where your training background comes. But I, I think it's for certain things, of course, I think it's a myth that you have to have been in the law enforcement or police for certain skills like hand to hand combat skills. You don't have to have been law basic tactical shooting you don't have to have you know if you're running field operations and yeah the experience really kicks in but um so where if not from police and military where where's the majority of your your training come from just civilian courses or so um there, there was all there was a lot so way back my, my instagram like thank god is actually growing really well so we have like we're, we're gaining a community of people who i'm interacting a lot with which, which is great is that I have a lot of people that I know on there. So it's not just random people. A lot of my followers I try to interact with because I actually want there to be a personal relationship with us. Now, way back, I was doing a lot of videos of like rapid reloads and just drawing and doing a lot of like more cool kind of guy stuff. And this was way before I had any training at all, but I was interested in like the fundamentals of it. So what ended up happening is that I got called by this company that they had a member of um, the US Navy SEALs and one of the heads of Australian Special Forces and I was one of seven people picked to join that course to be able to train with them. So I ended up going to that course. I ended up completing top of my class, even though I had no formal firearms background, just because I was focusing on fundamentals. And that was like my first like formal entry into firearms training. After that, I started training with tactical response with members of the United States Marines. And I did very well with them as well, which was a lot of fun. Uh, I trained with a company called GORUCK, where they did counterterrorism course with U.S. Army Rangers. Um, later, I got three certifications under the NRA as an instructor. And then I also got trained um, as an instructor for the Department of Justice. And later, my company got approved by Homeland Security to be able to do security assessments for facilities. Um, on top of that, I make sure that every single year, at once a year minimum, I go to one large training class, which means it's a course that means I have to travel somewhere with getting all the arrangements to make sure I do one formal class like that. And throughout the year, a few little classes here and there to make sure I'm keeping myself up to par. So what it comes down to is there, there's a few different aspects. Now, I, I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for saying what I'm about to say, but it's the reality. Just because someone was in the military doesn't mean they're a good teacher. What that means is I had a lot of teachers going through school that were brilliant, brilliant guys. But to be able to give over that information to a student in a way that they could grasp it is a skill. By itself is a skill. The other aspect is that if a guy went to combat, he has something that no one else has, which is experience in being in a gunfight. But as a civilian, he's not able to give you that experience. He could try to train you and give you the mentality of what he went through to give over that experience. But ultimately, you just like anyone else has to experience that for yourself if you want that level of training. So if a guy has military background, there's obviously a huge amount that he's able to offer you that I would not be able to offer. But what you have to think about is what is he able to offer you 
that he was able to offer you without the combat experience being the main thing, right? So combat experience is one thing and he's not able to give that over to you, but he's still able to give you the training and the fundamentals and try to impart to you as much as the mindset as possible. But ultimately the actual combat experience, he's not able to give you because it was something that's personal to him. So what that means is that for law enforcement, for civilian and for military, firearms fundamentals could be ultimately the same throughout because we could all kind of regurgitate the same information. It just depends on who you trust to give you that information. A lot of stuff there to unpack. Um, the teacher thing, I agree, you don't feel bad. It's, it's, I think the 80-20 rule is a, just a universal thing where 20% of people are doing 80% of thing. We all had shitty teachers. I had shitty commanders in the army. I've had shitty bosses, you know, and, and it's the ego coming in that, you know, I think one of the biggest problem in teaching, you know, even in elementary and primary is a lot of people may love it, but they suck. And they're ruining a generation and the same you know when it comes to uh tactical training for the police right they'll always sometimes they bring people from the outside they're like oh let's like i do jujitsu don't get me wrong and gracie combatives but a lot of it is eh, they don't understand law enforcement's needs and they don't understand and, and they may be you know you could be a phenomenal teacher but not understand what how you're teaching what you're teaching for the needs you could be a shitty teacher with a name you could you know there's a lot of of human factors and and, and i think a lot I, uh one of them one of the people i love listening to is it's not tactical he's an intellectual investor uh, naval ramakan and he's like with the age of the internet right really it's the top teachers the top one percent that should be teaching everyone because we now have you know access but good luck you know in america the teachers union is being a disaster right now it's just that's the reality of teaching or anything some people are not good and if, if the goal is to say teach uh tactical training for example then you want to find the best and as you said you came you came off the proverbial street and just blew the class away and it's like oh this guy this guy is uh is good maybe he should be teaching people and you know that's i i don't think there's anything wrong with with saying that right you know um the other thing was the, the field experience. Now, I, I noticed this. I, 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 was, I guess you could say it was luck. I didn't actually go to any wars or anything while I served in the IDF. But one thing I noticed was the Spitzim, the people who jumped through the you know, uh, soldier or sergeant, uh, a lot of them, when it came down to real stress, sucked and made horrible decisions. Uh, you know, this, what's the same peacetime soldiers make bad wartime soldiers and good wartime soldiers make the, one of Canada's most decorated soldier, Smokey Smith, who was demoted twice in peacetime, but he has like crazy decorations in wartime. And, and I saw that, you know, these these guys, you know, just in training exercises, they wouldn't feed us. We were, we were marching for 60, 70 kilometers, uh, field exercises, and then they'd be like, oh, uh, the, the supply line's coming and our food ran out. And three days later or two days later, whatever it was, no food. And you're like, oh, those guys are acting very not so great anymore. And yeah. the guy, we actually, we actually, in my, I was in the sniper squad and we accidentally, like we this totally honest mistake. We forgot we had buried a can of tuna because we didn't pack so well that time. And we found it mid-exercise and, and the guys are like, hey, we should share this. This is the right thing. I was like, don't you dare. Because if you let those other people know we have it, they're going to go nuts. And so we had to like, because I could see the red in their eyes. These are the Spitzim, the, the good guys, and they just couldn't handle it anymore. Uh, and you find under pressure, not everyone has it, all the training. It's like, who's the best at what? You know what I mean? 
So that's what it comes down to. Like, also, again, so to, to clarify, I have the utmost respect for members of the military, the utmost yeah. respect for law enforcement. What I'm just saying is that the point is that a person shouldn't decide on a teacher solely because of their background, because that's not the only qualifier for you to be able to be a great student and for you to gain the best that you can gain. And to clarify, all the best instructors I've been to had all that military background, but on top of that, they were great teachers, which yeah. is why I love them, which is why they were so good at what they did. Um, but also, unfortunately, besides, because, because of budget and location and where people are, we can't have always the best instructors always available. So I'm trying to fill the role of, I'm trying my best to be the best instructor that I can and impart the knowledge that I've gotten from instructors that I trust. And I totally understand why someone doesn't come to me. If, if they're going to come just to be like a, like you're just a character in the thing, I, I don't need you. It's fine. Yeah. But I'm trying to be honest and open with what I'm doing. I'm not trying to be something I'm not. I'm not trying to portray something that I'm not. Uh, I'm just trying to be the best instructor that I can to help as many people as possible um, in a way that makes sense to everyone that I can. Yeah. I mean, and you know, in the IDF, you know, I went to sniper school in Mid Kanadam, and uh, all the instructors, well, a large percentage of the instructors are women who have never done combat or never served in the field. Their job is instructors and they produce phenomenal inst uh, snipers. Right? And it's who's the best at the skill set. Right. When it comes to the actual field experience, only one thing really <laughs> works for that is go get the experience. But when it comes to the actual technical technical skills, you can learn that, you know, from an instructor, no problem. And, it, you know, I, I try to stay off like the gun community forums because I just can't deal with the bullshit. It's particularly the, the tactical or even a lot of guys coming out of the U.S. military. Some of the things they're saying, I'm like, that's not actually true. That's just your unit's preference. You know, I, I once had a student who was French Foreign Legion and we were just doing a mock exercise for fun. And he's like, those aren't the right commands. I'm like, sure they are. If I say the command is purple, the command is purple. As long as you all understand it. He's just so drilled in to their way of doing things. They didn't understand. Maybe that's not the only way to do things. And so that's that's what you said before. Of like the, the Israelis having a very usual, like a very yeah. straightforward approach that this is the way it's done. That's it. Yeah. So that's the of the biggest debates we have in the gun world, which I backed out of all debates, meaning we're in America, do whatever you want. I'm just going to give you my opinion and I'll give you reasons for why I hold by that opinion. But ultimately it's up to you to make that decision. That's what they're like called condition one of carrying with a bullet in the chamber. Man, the debates that go on of like, it's yeah. too dangerous. You should never carry it and this, that, whatever. And I said like, again, you do whatever you want to do. I just want to put things in perspective. Let's say you're holding your kid and you're at a, you're at a mall and then something starts escalating and you're dealing with someone else and you're still holding your daughter, Right. You now need to draw your gun and fire it, right? You need to draw and be able to rack it. Now, if you're racking it against your belt, completely possible. These are all things that are adding time and adding the potential for a malfunction. During a situation that's a run and gun kind of thing, what's your, what's your move? Again, up to you to do whatever you want. Yeah. It's just something that you should think about that even if you decide to carry in condition one or carry without one, sorry, if you want, if you want to carry without one in the chamber, I don't care. Just have that as a potential thing in mind to train on, because if that's the way you're going to train, train in scenarios that are going to be your worst, so you can prepare, so you can be ready. Yeah, and I, I guess for people who don't know the context, is the standard Israeli way is not to chamber around, but a lot of other law enforcement is as well. Now, I don't know if this is a true story, and I would love for someone to actually fact check me, but my understanding about where the whole you know draw and rack thing came from was because the original Jerichos were prone to misfire, and so they stopped chambering around. And as a result, they drew it. Now, I've heard this story before. I'm like, that is, it's, it's one of those, if it is true, again, so I would love someone to fact check me on that. Probably not going to be an Israeli because they won't be honest about it. Um, but it's like just a mishap 
caused a situation requiring that development of the body alignment style of the Israelis, which generally seems to be quite more accurate. It's just funny how that works. And then they'll give you some explanation about why. And it's like, uh, well, if that story is true, then it was an accident. Like most great inventions, it just sort of accidentally had. Like imagine if you a really big SIG fan and you have, I forgot what it was, a pig P320 that's expiring or a P whatever yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah imagine yeah, three, you, yeah, three, you don't want to walk around with a chamber drive. Yeah. <laughs> SIG had to offer some pretty big retractions on the, <laughs> You so know. I heard it. I heard it similar, meaning I heard that it could have been. You're saying you could be right, but what, what I heard it, it could have also been that simply because um, since Israel works on a draft, yeah. they have to take tall, short, fat, skinny. No matter who's coming, they have to train them and try to get them to a certain standard. Now, what ultimately happens is that since they're they're dealing with that, it's very possible also for there to be just general accidental discharges with yeah. guns simply because of not proper trigger discipline and things like that, which got better. But the point is that if you have so many soldiers, you need to be able to monitor. And it's possible that that could be a problem. Um, they have a system where like our rule is that you just don't have one in the chamber because the likeliness that a regular soldier is going to be getting into is probably lower than full combat. So we'd rather you just not have a bullet in the chamber unless you need it. So I get it. But we have to imagine that now that we're in the U.S. and that we have the ability to do whatever we want, is that the best way to carry? Because it was based originally on policy. So it's it's a it's a never-ending debate. I know I'm going to have the debate again with someone else. It's just do whatever you want. Just think about the pros and cons of every variant in the situation and see what really would work best for you. Yeah, and I think that's a it's situational. Um, so you know, if I if you take the stance that you shouldn't be drawing that firearm unless you're ready to take a life, then having a chambered round is probably a good idea. But if you're using the firearm as a deterrent, then it may not be a good idea to have a chambered round. For example, the standard, uh, at least it was when I was uh, ten or eleven years ago. You know, uh, you don't have a chambered round. Uh, you tap and rack. You know, you fire in the air. You go through the process to try to de-escalate. People don't always do that, depending on how fast the threat is coming, which would be completely appropriate if they're sprinting at you, say, with a knife or something. Um, if they're just standing there, then probably not. Um, and it's very circumstantial. And again, the, the, it's not just Israelis, but you know, American Marines. I'm sure you've worked with Marines. They're just like, this is the way. <laughs> like, eh. and, uh, and people get so used to what they're used to in gun culture, and they can't understand well, the way I teach Krav Maga is I hate the what if answer, like it's a common thing. A lot of people who teach Krav Maga seminars, people like the, well, what if this? And I'm like, you need to train more. Cause you know, if you've been training for five years and you can't just automatically do based on the circumstances, then you're might not be good enough to, to make a decision in that moment, right? That so yeah, sense. so that's what it comes down to is that, um, um, so first of all, there, there's a huge, well, besides your legalities, there's a huge debate about using a gun as a deterrent. Obviously we, we want to use it to be able to try to deescalate because we don't want to shoot them, but we also have to be very, very ready and capable to be able to use it. Um, but yeah, what, what it comes down to is that if a person is not ready and they haven't trained enough to understand different scenarios and how they could play out, then they, they should be getting more training. And um, what you just said of that, people ask a lot of what if questions and those questions are okay to ask. I mean, you could, you could ask, you can make up a scenario, but if you're, if you're creating a scenario based on so many different levels of un, being unrealistic, where you're, you're trying to create a new form of fighting just because of your what-if scenarios, yeah. then go back to basics. Yeah. Start again, understand the fundamentals, understand what you need to do to survive a real dangerous situation. And then once you understand all that thoroughly, you can start trying to implement whatever you want. But yeah, fundamentals are really, really important. 
Yeah, and I, I Gundasams, I, I, the way I approach that is like, I'll see also, even in the crowd world, and just people doing all sorts of crazy shit and making it look, well, what if this crazy talk? I'm like, okay, principle of gun disarm, control the muzzle, control the firearm, disarm the thing. Beyond that, I don't care how it looks. I mean, there's certain standard disarms you do because they work, you know, a higher percentage of the time. But beyond that, these, all these crazy situations, it's like, dude, what do you, like, the fundamentals are what matters. As long as you don't get shot and hopefully no one else gets shot, though, I tend to believe that if you can disarm someone and one person gets shot, that may prevent 10 people from getting shot. Uh, not everyone agrees with that, but it's that, that, that fundamental is stop overcomplicating things. And the more you drill, like I once taught a guy from Taiwan Special Forces, just standard Israeli, you know, hold the rifle up, uh, take the magazine out, put it back, or just even touch your hip, bring it back and just look and walk in circles. He's like, oh, that's a really good drill. All you're doing is drilling that, you know, the proprioception of loading your firearm without having to think too much so that your nervous system knows what to do. Uh, do you do a lot of training like that or it's just, you know, that kind so, of- Yeah, so the, the, what we try to tell people is that six days a week should be dry fire, one day a week should be live fire because yeah. if almost everything you're doing is about body mechanics, then you don't necessarily need to pull the trigger. Yes, you should be trained with pulling the trigger because it, it adds certain elements that you didn't have without it. But if the fundamental of reloading a gun doesn't require bullets, then practice that motion at home. You don't need to be shooting. Why waste ammo on something that doesn't require ammo to be used? And if your trigger press is incorrect, you should be able to figure out that your trigger press is a problem in dry fire training than to go to the range and start wasting ammo only to realize that that was the issue. So dry fire is a huge part of what we do. Um, on my Instagram, the we're putting out weekly drills and all the weekly drills we're putting out are based on either very low amounts of ammo or things that you could do without ammunition. So you could practice those fundamentals that ultimately make you a better shooter without needing to shoot. So yeah, doing doing drills like that where you're not shooting ammo, but you're practicing the mechanics, you're getting better at the mechanics is very, very important and makes people very, very good at what they do. Yeah. Well, and it's something I just thought because I get in a debate with this with people, you know, <clears throat> never deployed as a sniper, but I, I trained heavily on um, uh, multiple weapons platforms. Um, the idea of breathing, I, I think it's overemphasized and, and, and overemphasized, overemphasized, right? Okay. Now, again, I was never deployed in action, so I don't know. Uh, and I think to me, like what I think for work for me is as long as my diaphragm is relaxed, it didn't cause too much problems or if for pistol shooting, like if they're so close and you're, unless you're trying to get that tight little grouping, which is good with a pistol have, if you can do it by like awesome. But uh, I just think it's oversold as, as a necessity. Like it's important. Well, I'll, but I'll debate you about, I'll, I'll tell you yeah. why. I'll tell you why. So I'll, I'll, so I'll explain to you why I teach breathing as an, as an important thing. Yeah. So when a new shooter comes to class, the, Number one reason why I focus a lot on breathing is only because the number one reason why new shooters miss is called shot anticipation. Yeah. Since there's going to be a bang and flash in front of your face, naturally your body's going to jerk the gun. Now, I teach a certain breathing technique where it could they, they could calm down and just be ready for the shot. Mm. Now, what ultimately happens is I don't use that breathing technique anymore. Since I've been shooting for a long time, I'm used to the gun going bang, and that's why it's okay. However, as a new shooter, if you're building that as a fundamental, over time, you're going to get used to it. But if you build it as a fundamental from the beginning, you're going to ultimately forget about it or not realize that you're actually doing it and it can help you. But it's not something that we're very specifically like, you need to make sure your breathing is in check, right? Yeah. Now, when it comes to sniping, it's a very different field because the further and further out you go, the more potential a breathing shot can make a difference. So for example, if you do a breathing technique and you start holding your breath, right? So now 
you start shaking because you're not breathing properly, then that can make a difference than if you did an exhale and then held your breath. I mean, obviously the further and further out you go, the more this would matter. But I do believe that breathing is important, but it's not the sole fundamental that needs to be focused on to be able to deal with. If it comes to shot anticipation and to being relaxed, yes, but it's not the only fundamental. So yeah, I know you, you make a fair point. I think it's, I, I would call that a teaching methodology then because it's more to do with the fact you're trying to uh, get over the nerves of, of shooting. Uh, and, and, you know, our nervous, I've been doing a lot of research, just, you know, me and my girlfriend love looking into like this stuff and <clears throat> we're starting to realize, uh, not specific to shooting, just in general, human health and, and biology is that there is a huge disconnect with the physical biology, like the research and data on physical biology and practical application, or let's take psychology for, you know, I do have a associate's degree in psychology, so I do have some, not an expert, right, but it, um, you know, it's, there's, in that field, um, they're always the, the cognitive psychologists who look at, you know, M fMRIs and brain scans and the biopsych people who, who look at the actual uh, chemistry versus, say, the social psychologists and all these other people, theorists and even personality, they're like not connecting with each other, right? So I would say that it translates all over the place. So in, in, in uh, it's come back to like, why do Israelis, you know, rack every time? is if, if the goal was actually originally to calm new shooters down because of nervous understanding of the nervous system, then it makes total sense. Um, but then if it's like, you must do it because your shot will be perfect, then it's like, that's where I think maybe my issue was is that I talked to a lot of people and they're like, yeah, yeah it's super, super important. I'm like, I don't know if it's 10, 10 meter pistol shooting, you're kind of just getting it on target and you're relying more. That's on the difference also. It depends on your purpose, right? So for pistol shooting, I focus heavily on it because even for myself, every now and then I will anticipate a shot yeah. and I will know it's because I wasn't calm and breathing is a method to relax. When it comes to like long range shooting, I, I, I custom built a sniper rifle yeah. that's fully capable of a thousand yards. However, depending on the size of a target at a thousand yards, a little bit of breathing when you're holding the rifle, you'll see that reticle move that could make a difference at a thousand yards. Yeah. So depending on the distance and depending on the size of your target and depending on how serious of it is, I could imagine why you'd want to make sure that all your fundamentals are rounded out to really be as accurate as possible. Uh, but then, yeah, if you're doing pistol shooting and you're generally relaxed and you're within three yards, that really shouldn't be a factor with yeah. like how close you are. It shouldn't be an issue. Yeah. And no, it's interesting, like, uh, allegedly, I was taught that, you know, the, the concept of one shot, one kill is a bit of a myth and that it's better to get on target and then get a second shot because, you know, the, the rounds are quite significant with those platforms. So you hit them even in the shoulder, they're going to be stopping quite, quite significantly. And then you get it on the second one, right? It's the idea that you want to, the whole Israeli strategy of stop the threat first, right? So we allegedly were taught, like, if you have three or four targets, you get them all once and then go back and get the rest versus, you know, there's the ideology. Maybe it's perpetrated by the, the Hollywood, which drives me nuts. But, you know, you one shot every time you kill like John Wick style. I love those movies, but I'm like, <laughs> you know, so speaking about the speaking, speaking about the human body, there is only one. There, there's two parts of the human body. One is referred to as switches and the other one is referred to as timers. Switches are the only part of the human body that if it's impacted, is an immediate shut off. And it's the only time that like a one shot, one kill is, is legit. Yeah. Everything else was referred to as a timer, which means eventually a person might bleed out and die or have some issue that would end up killing them, but it's not um, the initial thing that's going to happen. So the switch is the center of the head is referred to as a brain pod. It's like the central nervous system, like the main part of the human brain. 
if that's imp impacted, I actually have a video of it like that they've used in classes where it demonstrates a live example of a person getting into a gunfight with law enforcement and that impacting and seeing the difference versus if a person getting shot of the heart, yes, it's going to kill them, but it's not going to be the amount of time that you expect it to be. So yeah. there is that, that difference of timers versus switches. Yeah, it's just kind of like the <clears throat> misconceptions about the rear naked choke. It's like the movies make, oh, you do it, they die. It's like, no, they'll pop. Some I've seen people pop right back up after passing out, and I've seen other people not. They're just groggy for ten minutes, you know. Yeah. And I always find it interesting, especially in the in the firearms community, uh, the terminology because it, it really varies. Like I never even heard of the OODA loop until a few years ago. Uh, it never came up in my Krav Maga training, but I did a seminar with a, a well-known American uh, self-defense guy, and uh, he used the OODA loop. And then <clears throat> when you go on the internet, it can be it can be quite confusing if you're if you're you don't know what's like more legitimate versus the terminology or what's nonsense, especially in the firearms community, right? Ha have you been training much internationally at all yet, where you run into that sort of communication issue? So. Um... Gun guys are also a lot of guys who are very nerdy, myself included. I admit that there are so many acronyms and so many different terminologies and phrases and things like that. Um, I have a friend of mine who's currently uh, finishing a service in the IDF as a drill instructor, mm. and he's coming back to the U.S. and we're, we're going to be doing certain events together in the future. And the, the only issue we really had with communication was not just about terminology of like how they refer to things, but also just it's more really of a language barrier. Um, of different things that they're going to refer to on a firearm and its purpose of use. Yeah. Um, one which I'm pretty sure is not going to be appropriate for the, uh, for, the, for, the um, for this podcast. Well, you can say whatever you want. It's just I, I'm going to be very vague that. about it. <laughs> if you know, you know. That's what I'm going to do. But the vertical grip on an American uh, AR-15 is referred to differently in the military of Israel, right? So there, there are times that I would be using certain terminology to refer to something and it's just called something else yeah. In the the grip, you mean like the foregrip or like the uh the, the vertical yeah okay yeah, yeah yeah so so you serving in the israeli army probably know what they call it uh, but that was a, like something that was um terminology wise but otherwise it's more of a language barrier than it is anything of like a of a tactical acronym or something yeah. like that i mean personally i hate those things like you might i wasn't trained on them i don't like them i find them uncomfortable I'd rather just use without. And then you get the other people like, no, 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 I need to use it. What do you, do you prefer with or without? So I, I made a video on it where it's, I, I prefer it. However, I think a lot of people are using it incorrectly. Yeah. So if they understood how, so I, I posted it. So I do we, the weekly training videos that I did. I actually made a video specifically on it, just talking about uh, the thumb over bore method where you have your thumb over the top of the rifle mm -hmm. and the pros and cons associated with it. So like a, a lot of people are, like yeah, so, yeah, correct. So a lot of people have a certain understanding of how it needs to be held, mm -hmm. but the vertical grip can be a very, very beneficial thing if used properly. And um, oftentimes after I explain to someone how I recommend it being used, they understand the value of it and why it should be used. Um, but otherwise, I can understand why you wouldn't like it if it just makes the gun very wobbly and not as secure as you'd want it to be. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's... I. <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I don't actually shoot too, too much anymore. One, I'm in Canada and two, like I want to do the fun stuff, but it's hard to do here. Um, so I was just like, eh, I got enough shooting. I just make sure to practice my dry fire. Um, sorry, I lost track. What was I saying? You remember you're saying that you're, you're going to talk about the vertical grip and maybe why it was wobbly or not. Secure. Oh yeah. yeah. No, no, oh yeah. Okay. So one time I did uh, do a competition. Now I made the mistake and this is totally my fault. I should know better. My, my partner at the time, 
business partner prepared the guns and I did not double check and I don't know what the hell they did, but that foregrip was wobbly as hell. Right. And I was still like, I was like, obviously my score was garbage, but I was like, if you know how to shoot, and this is pretty close after I get the army, I was still getting nice groupings. I just had to keep compensating for the fact that it kept moving all over the place. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you have the fundamentals, I don't know if I could do that now. It's kind of out of practice, but the, like it shows you even, even if that is the case for tactical purposes, obviously your points, you're not hitting, but you can still compensate uh with that kind of thing if, if that ever happens i think so yeah that's a, that's a big part of like a lot of new shooters where i had a i, I set up an, a a basic rifle class and one of the students came with no sights on the gun at all like no backup sights no optic no nothing and it's it's a part of it's like it's a part of the job where you're trying to explain to people even the basic components and how to put them on. So then there's another guy who comes to the class and he has a red dot really really fancy really expensive he put thousands of dollars into his rifle but he didn't lock tight certain parts or he didn't um, tighten down the screws properly of the optic so you have an 800 dollars optic that's functioning less than a 15 dollars one off amazon simply because you don't know how to set that up so that's a part of knowing your field is knowing your components and knowing how to make sure everything is set up and structured properly to, to be used effectively personal preference like if you go into the gun store which gun do you buy well they're going to tell you they're uh, the thing that they want and it's if you don't know you're being sold something maybe <laughs> maybe Correct. you don't actually Correct. want what, what would you just quick advice for a new shooter buying guns if they're not so shooting? youtube is really a great resource because there is a lot of great information obviously there's always gonna, there's going to be bad but you could use that as a starting point to see like um what's a good beginner gun what should i be looking for what are things i should avoid what are gimmicks that are very common to be to be done also for example they could reach out to me like i have no problem if someone reaches out to me just to have the conversation and see maybe what would be the best purpose or what, what's the best gun for me maybe there's a gun that i haven't thought of that might be more beneficial than the run-of-the-mill standard stuff that's available just because of my particular like life circumstance um so it's very important to have a knowledge first before you walk into a gun store because a gun store is just like any other store they're trying to make money and they're trying to sell you products and even if that product is not realistic or good for a person if they're able to make a sale they'll make a sale so having a basic knowledge before you walk into one of what you should be expecting and what you should be getting um will obviously make a better experience for you you'll be probably saving a lot of money and you'll be using something that could end up being literally passed down generation to generation if, if it's kept and maintained properly Oh, cool. A uh, few quick questions. What's your favorite platform in uh, pistol and rifle? So I like the AR-15. I really, I really do like AKs, but yeah. only set up in a very certain way. Um, but for real practical use, I usually would go towards an AR-15. Yeah. Um, most of my guns now, just because I'm a snob, just because I'm in the business, I, I know what I like. So I have a lot of my, my guns modified, um, but my AR-15 is like nicely set up. My pistol of choice if I had only one pistol, it would probably be a modified Glock 17, just because it's kind of a straightforward yeah. gun that just works for me very well. Um, so between the two, I'm, I'm, I'm very like straightforward, like a yeah. very vanilla. I was actually looking at getting uh, the Glock 17. I don't have one yet. Uh, it was about a MMP9 and I was just, I think I got a lemon. I just, it's not good. <laughs> they they are both very good guns as long as they're not a lemon. But yeah, the yeah. key for me, the triggers uh, weren't always the best. Yeah. And you could still get them replaced, but yeah, I totally understand what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. and then we bought my my girl a uh, Glock 48, the, the small ones. Beautiful gun. It's great. Beautiful and I was gun. like, you know what? I'm gonna go get a Glock 17 when I uh, when I can. Um, so, uh, any last words before we wrap this up? So, 
last, the last thing is that, well, just kind of to sum up, a big part of what we were talking about today is training and how training is really important, not just training in ex specifically the field you're in, but the things surrounding the field you're in. So if you're a gun guy, you should also train medical. If you're a uh, in, very spe specialized into Krav Maga, you should also be maybe learning about like body mechanics and maybe stretches and things that are associated with it to help you be more comfortable as a person. Um, if a person's interested in training and learning more, they can follow me on Instagram because I have a huge amount of videos that I'm trying to put out of just basic training fundamentals. It doesn't cost anything. I'm not making anything off of it. It's just trying to give good positive information of like different things that you're able to do. If someone wants to, they can reach out to me to see if there's something they'd like to learn or if there's maybe a gun they want to buy and they have a question. I'd rather you call me and speak to me about it before you're getting ripped off and not getting something that's worthwhile to you. Just do your research, get your training done. And that's ultimately what's going to help you better be a better warrior. Yeah, and just so we put it out there, uh, your Instagram is? At NDF Training, or if you check the Tactical Rabbi, uh, you'll see NDF Training come up, which is the handle on the account. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on, Nazil, and uh, look forward to talking with you in the future for sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to The Warrior's Day. The Warrior's Day. Brought to you by Urban Tactics Krav Maga turning lambs into lions.